Well, are you ready for the word this morning? All right, let's pray before we come to it. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your great love. And Lord, we thank you that you left your word to us. Lord, that we can read it and we can understand, um, that we can know your will, Father, as you've, you've revealed it to us in your word and in your son. And this morning, Father, I just pray that we would continue to grow and mature, Lord, not just with an intellectual knowledge, but Father, that you would give us a revelation of your words this morning. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. So we're going to go ahead and continue in our series in the book of John. We're going to go ahead and get through uh, through 22 through 36 of the uh, third chapter. And last week, um, we ended with Jesus uh, kind of sharing one of the central tenets of Christianity, and that was that you must be born again. Now, you'll notice that John seems to like to jump all over the place as he's sharing his gospel, because now we're going to have a complete shift an abrupt shift from what Jesus was teaching, and we're going back to John the Baptist. And we're going to find ourselves in Anon, which is near Salim. If you don't know where that is, don't worry, nobody does. We actually don't know where it is anymore. So, But it's in the land of Judea. We know the name because it's mentioned in the gospel. And, and here we're going to begin to see that historical connection between Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. And both Jesus and John are in this area right now baptizing people. And we're going to begin to see a transition because what's happening is we have both ministries going, you know, full bore, they're going strong, but we're seeing more disciples flocking to Jesus and less flocking to John. Now, John, this isn't a problem for John. He was completely aware of his position. He understood that his purpose was to be a herald for Jesus. John was content for Jesus to come in and for him to slowly fade away into the shadows as Jesus stepped more into the limelight, if you will, into the spotlight. And this is actually probably why, why John didn't stop doing what he was doing. I don't know if you've ever wondered, like, wait a minute, John met Jesus. Why is he still doing his thing? You would think he would stop and start following Jesus. But John figured that my mission is to herald Jesus. God didn't say herald Jesus until he shows up. He says herald Jesus. So he's going to continue doing what he's doing until God gives him another mission. So he's staying in his mission. He's still out there preaching Jesus, saying the Messiah is coming, repent, be baptized, the Messiah is coming. But now it's probably a little bit different. Like, hey, we met him. He's over there. Why don't you go see him? But his disciples, they seem to be a little bit more touchy about the situation. They're having a little more trouble with the changes because um, the reality is, is they're not really with Jesus, they're with John. So today we're going to see John once again reiterate that, hey, I'm here to point to the Messiah. The fact that I'm uh, becoming less and he's becoming more, that, that was and still is the plan. And it's always going to be the plan. Amen? So let's get started. Verse uh, chapter, John chapter 3, verse 22 through 23, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and, re and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. So this is an interesting point in, in history where John and Jesus' ministries are overlapping. They both still have their ministries full going. And can you imagine being the people that live in this countryside and you've got these two major preachers 
stepping in. I mean, the, the hype around them is big. These, they, they know these are men of God. You know, they, they, they're, they're probably really excited, and now they're both in the same area. So these people are, are, are pretty awesome, but they're hearing the same, the, the, they're feeling awesome, but they're hearing the same message from both camps, right? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, is ultimately what's happening. And both Jesus and John are both drawing large crowds at this point. We also find that both of them are baptizing people, which is interesting if you remember, last week we talked about the idea that the Jews didn't really baptize. <laughs> this was a new thing for them. Um, something interesting to note here that says the, the phrases that John, uh, that, that Jesus was baptizing used uh, here, and also you'll see it again in verse 26, doesn't actually mean that Jesus himself was doing the baptism. And you say, Pastor Wayne, how do you know that? It's not like it says that. Well, it does in John 4, chapter 2. You go a little bit further, it actually says, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So when he's talking about Jesus and John baptizing, it's actually talking about their groups, not them specifically. And this is actually one of the reasons why Jesus leaves the area, as we read in chapter 4, as we get going, uh, Basically, the, the Pharisees are starting to rise to stink that Jesus is baptizing, and that's ultimately why he ends up leaving the area. Um, and we also have the issue, they're, they're really getting upset because they're already dealing with, with John baptizing people, and now they have Jesus baptizing even more people. So they, this is kind of where they start honing in on Jesus and where he's starting to become a thorn in their side, so they want to become a thorn in his. Amen? And then also... One of the things about this area which probably made it ideal for doing what they were doing is this place just had a lot of water. Turns out if you want to baptize people the right way, which is, baptismo means to submerge, not flick. It means to submerge in water. If you want to do it the right way, you need lots of water. So this is a perfect place. And actually this name, Aenon, actually means a place of many springs. So this is why they're there. And then in verse 24, it says, For John had not yet been put in prison. John is beginning to clarify kind of the chronology of the events that's going on. So you have to remember that this book, the Gospel of John, was written sometime in the 8090s. So what John is trying to do is, is put a timeline together of when these things are happening. Because it's likely that the people that are reading this letter, they knew about John's death and imprisonment, you know, his imprisonment and his death. They knew about this, but it's, it's 50, 60 years later. They, they may not have the idea, like, we know this happened, but we're not sure when it happened. And, and I think what John's just trying to do is clarify, because could you imagine the confusion where they're like, wait a minute, what's John doing there? I thought he was dead. So we say, no, no, this is, this is before he was even imprisoned. It also gives us an idea of uh, the reality of, of how the Gospel of John relates to the Synoptic Gospels. You know, one of the things is that the other Gospels were likely much earlier than, than this one. So the people had already read them. They already heard about John the Baptist. They already heard about his ministry. They've, they've read um, in the Gospels already, the other Gospels already that he was imprisoned and ultimately killed. So John is relying on them knowing about John. I love how it's John talking about John. Does anybody else get confused? But, but John the Apostles, relying on them knowing about what is happening John, to John the Baptist, knowing about the other Gospels, and if they hadn't even read the other Gospels, there's probably at least church tradition beginning to, to uh, uh, being gathered around this time. 
So John just assumed the readers knew about his death and said, but this happened before all that went down. And uh, it's easy for us to figure it out because, you know, we, we have hindsight and all the Gospels and everything put together, and we're like, man, he's talking about the beginning of his ministry. But then again, there is this idea that maybe John just puts stuff wherever he wants. <laughs> well, he's, his, his timeline's not as sharp as the other ones. So at least now we have some clarification. This is happening before John's imprisonment and ultimately death. Now, <laughs> it still seems silly to me. Doesn't it kind of have to happen before then? Because John got imprisoned and then he died. <laughs> Is there an alternative that's available? <laughs> but anyway, John had not been put in prison yet. It's obvious because he's out there baptizing people. <laughs> and now is when the trouble starts. In verse 25, it says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So John, as we've already known, and we've already talked about, is aware of his purpose. John understands that I'm here to herald in the king. I'm in to herald in the Messiah. But his disciples, I don't know if they've just not been listening. I don't know if it's because they're just a little protective of, of their mentor, of their teacher. But it appears that the events that are going on are starting to get them a little bit upset. And the truth is, I guess it is understandable because I know that uh, many disciples are protective of their teachers. I know that I've been protective of my mentors and, and pastors in the past, and I've known people that have been very protective of me as well. It's a normal um, reaction to want to defend and take care of people that you love. So uh, even though it's understandable, it's really easy for us to sit back in hindsight and go, man, what are these dummies doing? Didn't they listen to them? But the, we have to remember we're just like these people too. We, we feel the same way. We do the same things. So now as disciples, they find themselves in an argument uh, with a Jew over purification. Now, we don't have all the details, right? I'm, I'm reading the commentaries and I'm studying and seeing what historians say about this. And, and all we can do is, is make some um, educated guesses about what's probably going on. So all it says is that they were having a discussion. <laughs> What they're probably discussing, though, um, is the reality that the, the Jewish people already have rites of purification, rites of washing. They're already in place. And, and it could be that this Jew is wondering, wait a minute, we already have this, you know, the, 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 the purification, the cleansing, the washing. That already came down from God through Moses. What do we need one more washing? You know, what is this baptism you're doing? What is it, why do we need one more? Why isn't what we have good enough? Maybe that's what they were discussing. Or maybe it was, it was just a debate surrounding the authority of John's baptisms. Like I said, they've never done this before. Now they're going, wait a minute, if we're already good before, why does he have the authority to change things up? Who gave this John guy the right to start something new, to start baptizing people again? Or maybe, because we have Jesus and John both in the same area, they're wondering about, wait a minute, what is this baptism here? Now Now Jesus is doing a different one. Which one's the right one? Which is the one I'm supposed to be doing? Who has the authority to do these things? I don't know what they were talking about. Quit asking me all these questions. But this is probably what's happening. We can make some guesses, right? I mean, that's what you guys got from this one sentence, right? 
probably what's happening. All we can do is speculate, but it's likely these are the things that is coming up, you know, based on other conversations we see in the Gospels, and, and they're, they're being upset. And we also know that uh, the reality is, is that Jesus' authority is quite often challenged in the Gospels. In the book of Luke, in chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, it says, One day as Jesus, this is later in Jesus' ministry, so he's been doing it a while. People have seen the miracles. People at this point should be going, you know what? I think God's with this guy. <laughs> you know, he might be, what he says might be true, because everything is accompanied with signs and wonders and, 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 and stuff from God that's basically saying, this is my son. So this is later in his ministry when they probably should have known better. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him, uh, came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? Constantly, Jesus' authority is being challenged. So it's, 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 it's probably not too far-fetched to think that that's what's happening here. They're challenging what's going on because the reality is is that, that the Jews already had forms of cleansing cleansing and washing it originated from God it was, it was spoken through Moses it was passed on to the people but the problem is is that time tradition and as often happens when men get involved in these things it kind of transforms and changes over time right the, the idea of being cleansed and being washed was to be coming before God in a humble state or manner, understanding that you couldn't do it yourself. But over time, when it transformed into this, this thing that men could do, it became a, a work. It became this idea of, 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 you know, look at the things that I can do to be right with God instead of really what it was supposed to be about was coming humbly before God. So the simple ideas, the simple ideas of, of repentance and public baptism they're wondering, how do these things compare to what we're already doing? And the truth is, is it's <laughs> probably some valid questions. You know, one of the things as Christians, that uh, when people start showing up and trying to change the gospel, we get a little up in arms. Granted, I think that, that uh, we're in the right. The, the gospel is put out pretty plainly and clearly. It's, it's God's plan. But, and, and these Jews, you know, they're, they're, they thought they, what they had was from God as well. They just weren't listening the whole time to see that it was supposed to be changing. So after this discussion happens, now the disciples march over to, 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 uh, to John. It says, they came to John and said to him, in uh, John 3, 26 through 27, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. This is probably a little bit indignant, a little bit upset, like, what's going on? He says, look, he's baptizing, they're all going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So now we have this idea that uh, uh, this Jew is arguing with the disciples. It's probably wh why we think that they were, they were at least comparing to what was going on to Jesus because what's the first thing that the, the disciples do after they have this argument with the Jew? They march over to John and say, hey, look what Jesus is doing. And uh, they came to complain about how many people were coming to John. And the, the reality is, is that the disciples that were with John were interested in John's ministry. 
They were committed to John. They weren't committed to Jesus. If they were committed to Jesus, they would already be with him already. So they're still with John. And they're, they're being a little bit competitive. And the truth is, is, is I can understand this feeling because I have to keep this attitude inside of myself in check all the time. It's so easy to look at other ministries and look at their success and what, what's happening and what's going on. It's so easy to, to, to come before God and complain, why is it happening with them? Why is it not happening with me? What's going on? And, and I always have to keep my attitude in check with that, remind myself that I'm not supposed to be comparing myself to others without realizing it. These disciples were setting themselves up to be in opposition to Jesus. Without realizing it, they were setting themselves up to stand in his way. Can you imagine being that person? I don't want to be that person. I think I have to remind myself when God's doing something somewhere else, and instead of being upset that he's doing it somewhere else, I should rejoice that he's doing it somewhere else. I don't want to be found in God's way. Listen, I'm here and God can do with me whatever he wants, but he can do with them with whatever he wants as well. See, these, these disciples were, if they weren't careful, were going to find themselves in a pretty precarious place. Precarious? Precar precarious. That was my British accent. Precarious. But John answers them in much the same way that I've had to answer myself. He says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Basically what he's saying is that, listen, all ministry comes from God. We're not in competition. We're not in competition with the churches around the corner. We're not in competition with any life-giving ministry. That's one of the things that I've always been very adamant about uh, when we are trying to, to grow the churches, is we're not looking to take people from other churches. We're not looking to, to, to see some sort of Christian musical chairs. We want to see people saved. We want to see people that don't have a church come because I don't want to try to be, I'm not in competition with somebody else. If they're already being reached, then they're being reached. And their ministry is just as valid as our ministry here. We're not in competition all these ministries that exist all across the country and across the world, they've been given by God. When they're successful, we should be rejoicing and not wondering, well, how come we're not doing that good? And maybe you guys don't think about that stuff, but I always got to smack my, smack my noggin around sometimes in those because it's really easy to, for those thoughts to come in. Not so much... Um, not so much wondering, um, you know, why are they doing good and we're not, but wondering, like, am I not doing something right? Are we failing? Are we, are we messing up? And, and I have to remember. And God is so, so often gracious to remind me in his word, through scripture, through other people, through other, uh, you know, some of my leaders and my mentors to, to remind me of these things. I have to remember that, that it's actually not me building his church. It's him building his church. You know, so I understand what these disciples are going through, the things that they're thinking. But John reminds them, listen, he can't receive even one thing unless it's from heaven. If he's succeeding, it's because God wants him to succeed. And the truth is, Jesus' ministry was increasing because that was the plan. It was supposed to. And truth be told, 
This would be an interesting thing. For John, if people are leaving him to go to Jesus, that's actually not a sign of faith. That's a sign of success. That was his whole purpose. Even though the disciples, they were feeling like it was something different. And then in verses 28 through 29, it says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So John begins to reiterate what he's been saying this whole time. Listen, I'm not the Messiah, guys. He is. I wasn't come to increase my ministry. I was, my whole purpose this entire time My entire ministry's goal was to point people towards him. My purpose is to funnel people through me to him, to get them to go over to him. So listen, this is is what I was put here before. And I've told you this. That's what this means here. You yourselves bear me witness. Is What he's saying is, listen, you guys know I already told you this. You were there when I said this. I am not the Messiah. It's interesting to me that John has always been clear about his purpose and his ministry to his disciples, yet in their zealousness for him, because they love him, they kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. Kind of like with Jesus' disciples when he said, you know what, I must go and die. And they said, no, may it never be. Like, are you guys not listening to me? I've been telling you, I have to die. That's the thing. And But sometimes when we want to protect those we love, we... we uh, Ignore the obvious sometimes. He wanted to make sure that those who were following him could see clearly that there was a difference between himself and the one he was heralding in. There was a difference. They weren't the same. And he wants to make sure there's no confusion. Yet it seems there was confusion anyway. So he begins to use this analogy of the bride, the bridegroom, and the friend of the bridegroom. You know, the marriage covenant is often used as an expression or pattern of the covenant between God and man, between Christ and his church. And it's interesting to me, like I was thinking about this as I was reading this, it's not even just the marriage covenant between the man and the woman that describes this relationship between the church and and God, or between church and Christ, but even the best man, even the friend of the bridegroom, is all part of the analogy. It all fits together. So this is what John's talking about. He says, listen, just like in the case of human marriage, the friend of the bridegroom, he has two responsibilities. One is he's there to help to make sure everything's ready, to make sure everything's prepared. And two, he's there to rejoice with the bridegroom over the wedding that's to come. Rejoice that the bridegroom has found his bride. The bride was never meant for the bride, the friend of the bridegroom. The bride was always meant for the bridegroom, not the best man, not the friend. And if you think about this, and it's easy for us to understand in these kind of relationships, if the friend of the bridegroom and swoops in and tries to steal the bride, I think you can remove the friend of part. <laughs> That's not a very good friend. If your best man comes in and tries to steal your future, your, your future wife, your bride, that's not, a, that's not a very good friend. Matter of fact, I think that swings all the way to the other side. That's a pretty awful friend. 
maybe even an enemy. <laughs> but a good friend, a good best man, a good friend of the bridegroom, he rejoices when his friend has come and found his bride. He rejoices. So John understood what was happening. He understood that, listen, I'm not here for the bride. I'm here to just to support the bridegroom. What is happening right now is what is supposed to be happening. This was the plan all along. So he helps the bridegroom find his bride, and that's why he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What I have come to do is starting to be fulfilled right in, my, in front of my very eyes. My mission is succeeding, and I'm rejoicing that the bride has found the bridegroom. And he wanted his disciples that were following him right now to feel the same way. Listen, guys, don't be upset they're not here with me. Rejoice that they're going to where they're supposed to be going. And then we have one of... Uh, John the Baptist, probably most famous lines. He must increase, but I must decrease. John was under no illusion that he was supposed to remain in the spotlight. He understood his purpose. He understood his goal, what God has sent him to do. You know, and, and uh, he could, he's going to be able to stand before God one day and say, you know what, I ran the race that was set before me. I did what I was supposed to do. And if he were to try to remain in the spotlight, you, you gotta, I'm glad he didn't. And I'm glad he had the wisdom to understand what was going on because if he would have listened to his disciples, if he would have let them get behind him and rile him up, he would have found himself trying to supplant Jesus. He would find himself in opposition to Jesus. And he would find himself being disobedient to his heavenly calling and in opposition to God's plan. I'm so thankful that he didn't. And not only did he not, he had the wisdom to share that with his disciples. And, and, uh, and, and, and we're going to find out that many disciples still stay with him. I don't think he changes his tune. We do see later in John the Baptist's life, he gets a, uh, uh, a little concerned, which has always been interesting to me. Um, and now I'm just going off track and target. But <laughs> he, he sends messages to Jesus and says, hey, are you the one? Now, if you remember back just a few weeks, the event that happened, God speaks to John <laughs> and says, this is the one. And now later it's like, are you the one? But I think it's probably because much like all the other Jewish people, even though he knew Jesus was the Messiah, he still had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah would be. He's like, wait a minute, you've been here a few years and you haven't overthrown Rome yet. What's going on? Even John misunderstood who the Messiah should be. But praise God, he never got in his way. He kept sending people to Jesus. He fulfilled his purpose. Amen? Because here's the thing. In verses 31 through 32, it says, He who comes from above is above all. He is of the earth, belongs to the earth, and speaks in earthly ways. But he who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. This is confusing to you. It's, it's really simple. He who comes from above, that's Jesus. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth. He who is of the earth. He's talking about himself and his ministry and really every other earthly ministry. So John understood Christ's superiority and preeminence above himself. 
He understood that Jesus wasn't like any other man who was just born of this earth. You see, while Jesus was fully man, we understand that he was, he was born as man. He was fully man. He never stopped being God. So Jesus was still fully God. He was still above all. He's the one that came from above. And as such, he was not limited in the same way that we are who speak in an earthly way. He has different authority. He has different uh, uh, drive. He, he has a better understanding of the Father and the will of the Father because he was actually there. He knows what the will of the Father is. That's why later Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. He speaks as one who has authority because he is from above. And as a result, he is above all. And when Jesus speaks... He speaks, he's bearing witness of the things he has seen and heard from the Father. Jesus was the Father's representative in word and in action. He's perfect theology. And what he does and what he says is the will of the Father because he only does what he sees the Father doing. But the problem is, is he ran into a people who rejected his testimony, who didn't receive him. That's what it says here. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That's kind of what's happening with these disciples a little bit, right? They're not really receiving his testimony. It's quite possible that the, the disciples were on the verge of doing this very same thing if they didn't quickly hear what John was saying and change their attitude towards Jesus. And in verses 33 through 35, it says, whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. So however, even though we just learned in the last verse that generally, overall, they were rejecting Jesus' testimony. But some would receive it. Some had received his testimony. They believed that he was the Son of God. They believed that he was the Messiah. And their belief in this testimony of Jesus, that was their seal of approval. That's what he says. Whoever receives this testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. Their believing in him was their seal set to what God said. And he says uh, uh, it was basically their approval of what God has said and, and what he was doing through his Son. Now, this doesn't mean that without their seal of approval that Jesus was impotent or that God's plans weren't going to get carried out. Um, just so no one's under the illusion, God is not waiting on our, our approval to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. But John is speaking about those who receive this testimony. They're, they're setting their seal. They say, hey, I agree with this. I believe what he's saying. It shows that those who do believe put their trust fully in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And... Uh, if you didn't know this, this is a pretty wise decision. To put your trust in the one whom God has sent, the one who utters the words of God, right? For he whom God has sent, Jesus, he utters the words of God, and he's given the Spirit without measure. You see, when the, the, the prophets of old, the Old Testament prophets, which were speaking, the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would, they would speak God word, God's words, but then the Holy Spirit would leave them. They didn't always have the Holy Spirit upon them. They weren't always hearing from God. They went uh, long periods of time without hearing God's voice. But Jesus has the Holy Spirit 
without measure. That means the Holy Spirit never leaves him. He's always there. He's always, the Spirit of God is always with Jesus. And all things have been given to Jesus because the Father loves him. So the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. When, when God sent Jesus to this world, he had committed his divine plan for salvation to the care of Jesus. Now we have the privilege in the hindsight to know that Jesus ultimately fulfills his mission. He received God's plan for salvation and he fully committed it. He carried it through to completion. In John 17, 1 through 4, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven, to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given to me. You see, when we, we receive our testimony, that's who we're putting our trust in, the one who accomplished the work, the divine plan for salvation in Jesus Christ. And we'll end here. You guys are getting a little bit lucky. It's a little bit shorter one today, I think. But uh, in John 3.36, it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This kind of ends in the simple truth of the gospel. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but instead the wrath of God still remains upon him. It's a beautiful thing because every single one of us can know that we have eternal life. I love that we don't have to wonder that when we die, we're going to stand before God, and I, I hope we did enough. I hope I did. We don't have to stand. There, there's not some measuring system. There's, not, there's a simple question that you have to answer. Do you believe in Jesus? Or do you not? Do you receive his free gift of salvation? Or do you not? Is your trust in him? Or is it not? That's the simple question. If you believe in him, you don't have to have any doubts or concern. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be unsure. If you believe in him, you have eternal life. Do you want to know why I know this? Because it says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It doesn't say whoever believes in the Son probably has eternal life or has a good shot at eternal life. It says if you believe in the Son, you have eternal life. You can know. You don't have to wonder. You can be sure. But everyone who doesn't have the Son, they should know that they can be sure as well. They can be sure that they have the wrath of God waiting for them. Because you have a choice. You can either accept that Jesus took the wrath of God that was your portion on himself, or you can say, no thanks Jesus, I'll pay for that myself. I'll go ahead and deal with that myself. There is no in-between. You either believe in the Son and have eternal life, or you don't and you don't. It's super simple. Super easy. But I thank God that it's that simple and that easy. I thank God that I don't have to earn it. Because I failed at that a long time ago.
But Jesus didn't fail. He accomplished the work that was set before him. He made a way for us. And if we'll put our trust in him, we're made brand new. We have eternal life. Amen? Amen. Well, let's go ahead and bow our heads.